Water had risen to within 15 feet of the 1,200-foot level, where Marquez worked the rotocrosite vein. The slowly rising water told him that it would be a matter of only a few weeks before it reached the top of the old shaft and spilled over into the main tunnel, spelling the end of his gemstone mining operation. He set his mind on extracting as many stones as he could in the brief time he had left. Seventy-five yards into the tunnel, he came to a narrow cleft in the rock just wide enough for him to slip through. Twenty feet beyond was the load he was mining. A dangerous overhang of rock protruded just above the cleft. If he was to work without being crushed by a rockfall, Marquez had no choice but to blast it away. Using a portable pneumatic drill, he bored a hole into the rock. Then he inserted a small charge of dynamite and wired it to a handheld detonator. A dull thump echoed through the mine, followed by the sound of tumbling rock. The overhang was gone, and Marquez stared in wonder at a hole that had suddenly appeared in the roof above the crystal load. He aimed the light atop his hard hat upward. The beam continued through the hole into what appeared to be a chamber beyond. Suddenly consumed by curiosity, he ran back up the tunnel until he found the rusty remains of a six-foot iron ladder among the abandoned mining equipment. Returning inside the cleft, he propped up the ladder, climbed the rungs, and pried several rocks from the rim of the hole, widening it until he could squeeze through. Marquez found himself staring into a cubicle room hewn in the rock. Strange markings were cut into the sheer smooth walls. Then, abruptly, the beam of his light struck a stone pedestal and glinted on the object it supported. Marquez froze in shock at the ungodly sight of a black skull, its empty eye sockets staring directly at him. The pilot banked the United Airlines Beechcraft twin-engine plane around a pair of cotton-fluffed clouds and began his descent toward the little Telluride airport. Patricia O'Connell was the last passenger to step to the ground. She inhaled the mountain air deeply as she walked from the plane to the terminal building. As she passed through the door, a short, stocky man with a shaven head and a dark brown beard walked up to her. Dr. O'Connell, please call me Pat, she replied. You must be Dr. Ambrose, and you call me Tom. A professor emeritus at Arizona State University, Ambrose was an accomplished anthropologist with thirty years spent on the trail of early man and his cultures throughout the Southwest. Pat still did not know why she had been called to the site. Dr. Kidd offered almost no information at all about the discovery. And neither will I, said Ambrose. It's best that you see for yourself. Ambrose manhandled Pat's heavy bag to a Jeep Cherokee parked in the lot outside the terminal. Pat hesitated before entering the car to absorb the magnificent view of the pine and aspen forests ascending the slopes of Mount Wilson and Sunshine Peak across the valley. Pat's hair was a radiant red and cascaded to her waist. Her eyes were a sage green. She stood, as if sculptured by an artist, weight on the right leg with the left knee turned slightly inwards. Her shoulders and arms suggested a more muscular build than most women, no doubt fashioned by long hours of exercise in a gym. There was no better person than Patricia O'Connell to decipher ancient writings. Thirty-five years old, with a doctorate in ancient languages from St. Andrew's College in Scotland, she taught early linguistics at the University of Pennsylvania. She had written three well-received books on inscriptions she had deciphered on stones found in different parts of the world. Married and divorced from an attorney, 
she supported a young daughter of fourteen. Ambrose drove through the town of Telluride, busy with the invasion of skiers, and into the Box Canyon, where the paved road ended at Pandora. They came to a side road that led to the ruins of several buildings. A van and a jeep painted a bright turquoise were parked outside. A pair of men were wearing wetsuits and unloading diving equipment. What can divers possibly be doing in the middle of the mountains of Colorado, Pat asked. They're a team from NUMA, the National Underwater and Marine Agency. I was told they're exploring a complex system of ancient waterways that connect to the old mine tunnels. Less than half an hour later, Pat and Ambrose were making their way through the damp tunnel with Marquez in the lead. When one of them spoke, their voice sounded hollow against the surrounding rock walls. Pat stumbled more than once on the ties holding the old rusting ore cart rails. Marquez stopped at a ladder and motioned upward to where a bright light spilled through the opening in the rock ceiling. I strung lights inside since you visited yesterday, Dr. Ambrose. Then he stood aside and helped Pat up the ladder. Not having been told what to expect, she was stunned. She felt like Howard Carter when he first viewed King Tut's tomb. Her eyes immediately locked on the black skull, and she reverently approached its pedestal and stared at the smooth surface gleaming under the lights. It's exquisite, she murmured as Ambrose squeezed through the opening and stood beside her. A masterwork, he agreed, carved out of obsidian. She shook her head in wonder. I've seen the Mayan crystal skull that was found in Belize. It's crude in comparison. Ambrose swept one hand around the chamber. The inscriptions on the walls and ceiling must easily have taken five men a lifetime to engrave in the rock, but not before an immense effort was spent polishing the interior surfaces. This chamber alone had to have taken years to carve out of solid granite at this depth. I've measured the dimensions. The four walls, floor and ceiling, enclose a perfect cube. If the interior surfaces are out of alignment or plumb, it's less than one millimeter. Pat removed a notepad, a small paintbrush, and a magnifying glass from a pack she carried on her belt. She moved close to one wall, gently swept away the dust of centuries from the rock, and peered at the strip through the glass. Then she stared upward. The ceiling appears to be a celestial map of the stars. The symbols... She hesitated. The symbols don't bear the slightest resemblance to any ancient writings I've ever studied. They're not pictographic like hieroglyphics or logographic signs that express individual words. Nor do the symbols suggest words or oral syllables. It appears to be alphabetic. How you doing up there? Marquez shouted from the cleft below. Pat answered. Do you have a stationer's store in town? Two of them. Good. I'll need a ream of tracing paper and some transparent tape to make long sheets I can roll. She fell silent as a faint rumble issued from the tunnel, and the floor of the cubicle trembled beneath her feet. An earthquake? Pat called down to Marquez. No, he replied through the hole. My guess is an avalanche somewhere on the mountain. You go on about your business. I'll run topside and check it out. As soon as Marquez's footsteps faded from the cleft below, Pat turned to Ambrose. You didn't tell me your appraisal of the skull. Do you think it ancient or modern? Ambrose stared at the skull. It would take a laboratory to determine if it was cut and polished by hand or with modern tools. The only fact we know for certain is that this room was not excavated and created by miners. 
There would have to have been an account somewhere of such an extensive project. Marquez assures me that old Paradise Mine records and tunnel maps show nothing indicating a vertical shaft leading to an underground chamber in this particular location, so it must have been excavated prior to 1850. Or much later. Ambrose shrugged his shoulders. All mining operations were shut down in 1931. A major operation such as this could not have gone unnoticed since then. I'll state without equivocation that I firmly believe this chamber in the skull are more than a thousand years old, probably much older. Perhaps early Indians were responsible, Pat persisted. Ambrose shook his head. Not possible. The early Americans built a number of complex stone structures, but an enterprise of this precise magnitude was beyond them. And then you have the inscriptions, hardly the work of people without a written language. This does appear to have the hallmark of a high intelligence, she said softly, her fingertips lightly tracing the symbols in the granite. With Ambrose at her side, Pat began copying the symbols in a small notebook until she could account for a total of forty-two. The more she examined the apparent wording, the more perplexed she became. There was a mysterious logic about the inscriptions that only a meticulous translation could solve. She was busily taking flash photos of the inscriptions and star symbols in the ceiling when Marquez climbed through the hole in the floor. Looks like we're going to be here for a while, folks. An avalanche has covered the mine entrance. Oh, dear God, muttered Pat. Not to fret, Marquez said with a tight grin. My wife has gone through this before. She'll be aware of our predicament and will call for help. A rescue unit will soon be on its way with heavy equipment to dig us out. A sense of relief settled over Pat. Well then, Dr. Ambrose and I can speak.